Thank you, Carolyn, for leading us in worship today, and Rebecca. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Acts, then go back just a little bit to the gospel for just a moment, the beginning of our sermon series. Acts 1 and Luke 1. We recently completed a sermon series from Luke's gospel. Luke, the gospel, is volume one. Today we begin a 12-week sermon series from volume two, the Acts of the Apostles. Did you know that if you take the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles and you combine them together, the writings of Luke in the New Testament, that together those two works form the greatest or largest contribution to the New Testament. Even longer than Paul's 13 letters are these two works, Volume 1 Luke and Volume 2 Acts, that all the letters of the Apostle Paul. So today, having finished Volume 1, today we begin the Acts of the Apostles, Volume 2. Well, turn back to Luke chapter 1. I want you to rem- I'll remind you how Volume 1 started. Luke 1.1. 1, 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated carefully everything from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the first volume, Luke, he dedicates his work to someone by the name of Theophilus. It's two words, it's theos, God, and philos, love. Theophilus, therefore, is a name that means one who loves God or lover of God. I, I think in my own mind that Theophilus must have been the patron who paid for the research and the writing of Luke's gospel. And so he dedicates his work like letters or works of antiquity to his patron. And so he reports back to the one paying the bills, Theophilus, all the things that have been handed down by eyewitnesses about this person named Jesus. And in volume one, he begins, you remember, with that birth narrative, that story about the birth of Jesus, Luke chapter 2, that went out of degree, and Caesar Augustus said, all the world should be taxed. You know that passage so well. And then we ended the gospel of Luke with Jesus ascending to heaven. We start at birth, we end with ascension. In fact, we're going to see in a moment that the Acts, volume 2, picks up right where volume one left off. It starts with the ascension. There's the overlap. Like a a good series on television, they review a little bit of the end of the last episode before they begin the new episode. We see the ascension again, and then we start with the Acts of the Apostles. Some scholars actually have an hypothesis that Luke and Acts traveled together from church to church as volumes one and two, that perhaps they were even inseparable, that they were one work, they went together, they traveled together, 
Volume 1 and Volume 2. Well, today we begin a new sermon series entitled Beginnings. The book of Acts is about a lot of new things that are beginning. And I, I hope you can be here and be committed to the next 12 weeks of sermons from the Acts of the Apostles. And if for whatever reason you have to, to miss a sermon, go to firstamarillo.org and you can watch it or print it off or listen to it on a podcast, however you like to receive it. But stay up with us for these 12 weeks on the series entitled Beginnings. Well, turn to Acts 1-1 and let's see how volume 2 starts I think it'll sound very familiar, familiar to you. Look at Acts 1.1. The first account, now what's that? That's Luke. The first account I composed, now who's paying the bills on this second volume? Theophilus, lover of God. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. There it is. Volume 1 is about the beginnings of Jesus' story. And notice this familiar name, the lover of God, Theophilus, apparently also supporting this second volume, the Acts of the Apostles. But Theophilus wanted to learn not only about Jesus, the beginnings of all that Jesus began to do and teach, but with this second volume, he learns about the Jesus people the church. So the first volume is about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and the second volume is about the beginning of Jesus's people, the church. Luke says in verse 2 that his first volume covered the story of Jesus until he was taken up, and now volume 2 starts exactly there with the ascension of Jesus, the overlap between book 1 and book 2. Well, the first thing I want us to notice this morning, point number one is Jesus continues his work through the church. Jesus continues his work through the church. Look at verses one through three. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles that he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering for many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Speaking about things concerning the kingdom of God. The first volume covered all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That is the gospel, isn't it? The teaching of Jesus concerns the kingdom of God, the inauguration, the inbreaking of God's kingdom amongst humanity, and the result, the things that happened, the things that he did, healed the sick, cast out the demons, the miracles that he performed, the first volume about what Jesus began to do and to teach concerning the kingdom of God. And in this first chapter in Acts, like the Last chapter in Luke, Jesus ascends to heaven. But now Jesus continues to do and to teach through his church. 
He indwells his church, we're going to see in Acts chapter 2, with his Holy Spirit, and the indwelt people of God continue the work that Jesus began. The birth of the church. I bet you've heard somebody say before, boy, you've got some big shoes to fill. What does someone mean when they say, You've got some big shoes to fill. As Americans, we have all sorts of interesting idioms. If you didn't know anything about English and you just heard someone say, boy, you've got some big shoes to fill, you wouldn't have any idea what that meant. Do they want your feet to grow bigger? What, What does that mean? Boy, you've got some big shoes to fill. We know what it means, don't we? It means you have taken on a task, done so well by your predecessor, that good luck matching the level of performance or excellence of the one who's gone before you. It is said that Harry Truman, after he, he told a group of journalists the day after his assumption to the presidency from a man who had held that role far longer than any other in history, boys, if you pray, pray for me now. I don't know if you fellas ever had a load of hay fall on you, but when they told me yesterday what had happened, I felt like the moon, the stars, and all the planets had fallen on me. 1934, Truman was a 50-year-old failed farmer, speculator, and haberdasher. Two years later, the fate of the planet and the most awful weapon in human history was literally in his hands, trying to fill the shoes Boys, pray for me. I bet we could sit here and think about all sorts of folks who had some big shoes to fill, folks who struggled to follow in the footsteps of the one who had gone before. Can you imagine Tim Cook, who has to fill the shoes of Steve Jobs of Apple? Harry McCracken in Time Magazine wrote about Steve Jobs with astonishing regularity Jobs did something that few people ever accomplished once. He reinvented entire industries. Now, following that act, good luck, Tim Cook, right? Now, here's one that everybody over 50 will know. So if you relate to this one, we'll know your age. In 1992, who left the Tonight Show? Johnny Carson. The undisputed king of late-night television, one writer wrote in 1992, on Monday, May the 25th, the occupant of that chair will change from Johnny Carson to James Douglas Muir Leno, a man whose jutting jaw has launched a thousand bad metaphors, making an end to 30 years of the Johnny Carson era. Well, I think Leno's retired now already and did pretty good for himself. But you see the difficulty, the challenge of following the big shoes of somebody, following in the footsteps of a legend. In reality, the church has to follow in the shoes of Jesus, to follow in his footsteps. It is as if in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is saying to the church, tag, you're it. I'm ascending to heaven, and you will be my witnesses. Look at verse 8, right there in the middle, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses. I'm leaving it in your hands. Now you are to do and to teach. God has no hands but our hands 
to do his work today. God has no feet but our feet to lead others in his way. God has no voice but our voice to tell others how he died. God has no help but our help to lead others to his side. Well, look at verse 3. He presented himself in his resurrected body after his suffering by many convincing proofs. Sometimes we don't realize that, but he was in the, the grave part of Friday, all of Saturday. He comes out on, on, on Sunday, which now is our day of worship, transformed. So he's in the grave uh, three days, we say, really two partial days and a whole day. But do you realize that he's on earth in his resurrected body for 40 days before he ascends to heaven? This wasn't a momentary appearance. It is a period of over 40 days when he continually appears to his disciples. And what does he talk to them about? Look at the end of verse 3. Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. There it is. For 40 days, the resurrected Jesus instructs his disciples about the reign and the rule of the Father, the kingdom of God proclaiming the future coming and present reality of the reign and the rule of God in his kingdom. And now God's presence and God's sovereignty means that men can be forgiven of their sins because of Jesus' suffering and his crucifixion. Now, we're going to cheat. I hope you don't do this when you buy a novel, but we're going we're to do a cheap novel trick. Turn to the very end of the book. Maybe sometimes when you get a new novel, you're so tense about how it's going to end for the main characters, you sneak and look, and then you can relax and enjoy the story, right? Well, let's do that. Let's turn to the very end of Acts, the very last chapter, which is chapter 28, the very last verse, which is verse 31. Now, what did Jesus do for those 40 days? After his suffering, he appeared for 40 days, teaching them concerning his, concerning what? Things concerning the kingdom of God. Look how it ends. Paul's in prison. He's waiting to be released or to be beheaded. We don't know which. But he's waiting for one of the two. He's, he's under house arrest, waiting. Well, let's look at verse 30. And he stayed, Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, it was house arrest, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching, there it is, the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. You see that? The book begins, chapter 1, verse 3, the resurrected Jesus for 40 days teaches concerning what? The kingdom of God. And how does the book end? Paul's in prison for two years, and everybody who comes to his house arrest, he tells them about what? The kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus. He welcomed all to hear the kingdom of God. Now, during those 40 days, you have various appearances if you were to take the appearances in the Gospels and add to them the appearances mentioned, our Sunday night crowd knows those appearances in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's sort of the list of appearances you have. He appeared to the women at the tomb. Number two, he appeared to Mary of Magdala. 
Number three, he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We saw that one on, on Easter Sunday. He appeared to Peter in Jerusalem. We learn about that one. Then he appeared to 10 disciples. Trevor told us about that two weeks ago because who was gone? Thomas. He came back then and appeared to 11 disciples. Then he appeared to seven disciples and went fishing with them in Galilee. Then he appeared again to 11 disciples. And Corinthians tells us on one occasion he appeared to more than 500 brethren. And then he appeared to James, the brother of our Lord. And Paul says later he appeared to Paul, the one untimely born. Those are at least the ones listed in the text. And it seems to me that the implication is during this 40 days, there were all sorts of appearances that are, are not recorded. There are different lists and none of the lists match perfectly. But during this period, he preached and taught concerning the kingdom of God. There's a second thing I want you to see. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue his work. Look at verses 4 and 5. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, and John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Do you remember the ending of the Gospel of Luke? He says, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The second thing we see is we are empowered with this holy clothing, this power of the Holy Spirit to continue to do and to teach the things that Jesus began. Don't leave Jerusalem. I'm going to send you on a mission, but I need you to stay here until you are seized by the power of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist had said the same thing, I baptize you with water, yes, but one comes after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Old Testament prophets had spoken of the day when there would be the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And that day will come in Acts chapter 2. So we are empowered by the Spirit to continue the things that Jesus did. Here's a third thing I want you to see. A clear purpose was placed upon the people of God. Look at verse 6 through 8. A clear purpose is placed upon the people of God. And when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it time for you to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. The kingdom involved the restoration of Israel, and now that Jesus has been victorious over death, they are sure he's going to set up an earthly kingdom. He's talking about the arrival of the power of the Spirit, and they say, oh, the prophets talked about the pouring out of the Spirit. Are we going to set up the kingdom? Is this the time now? Is this the time for the restoration of Israel, getting rid of Roman authority, reestablishing the ancestral regions of Israel and Jesus says, oh, no, 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 you're asking the wrong question. It's not for you to know the koinoi or the kairoi. It's not for you to know the time or the season. The times and the seasons are not for you to know. 
When Jesus will return is not your concern. Your concern is to be a witness. I, I won't spend much time here, but I have every admonition in Scripture to stop speculating and guessing when Jesus will return. I cannot understand why followers are disobedient and produce book after book trying to prove when Jesus is going to return. The new year is 2028 is what they're saying now. So I can go ahead and promise you it will not happen in 2028. That year will not be the year. It is not our job. It is the sovereignty of God to appoint the times and the seasons. It is not our task. Our task is not power, position, guessing, place, ambition. Our job is to be a witness. Do you remember what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said to the children of Israel, ancient Israel? You shall be my witnesses, God said to them. Do you see the parallel? Ancient Israel had failed to be the witness. Jesus fulfills where ancient Israel had failed and being the perfect witness of God. And now that task is given over to the church when Jesus says, just like Isaiah had said for God to ancient Israel, you shall be my witnesses. It's re repeated almost verbatim there in Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses. Start here in Jerusalem. Go a little wider to Judea, and then go to your, your enemy, Samaria. And then I want you to go to, as far as you can go, the remotest part of the earth. There is no ethnic or geographical boundary around what God wants to do. We have to ask ourselves that question, church. Every program, ministry, everything we do should be a witness to the story of Jesus. Everybody who sets foot on this campus for whatever reason needs to be confronted either subtly or forthrightly, whatever is the appropriate time and place with the story of Jesus and the demand of a response to repent and call Jesus Lord. You shall be my witnesses. That's it. Calvin Miller, in a book entitled A View from the Fields, Tells a story about a little old lady who was on the tour at Westminster Abbey. She sort of ignored the famous tombs. You've been there, some of you. I've been there. You're in awe. She, she ignored the magnificent architecture. And she even ignored the beautiful flowers planted. And at the end, when the tour guide allows you to ask questions in this stately historical place with all the, the famed history, she dared raise her hand and ask, has anybody been saved around here lately? The question was thought in poor taste, most likely because the answer was no. One reason. We shall be his witnesses. There's a fourth and final thing I want you to see. It's time to stop gazing and get going on mission for Christ. In verses 9 through 11, while he's talking to them about being witnesses, he's lifted up while they're looking on verse 9. Look at verse 10. They are gazing intently into the sky. The men in white clothing show up, verse 10. They say in verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? It's time to stop gazing and to get going, verses 9 through 11. 
There's an executive headhunter who says when he's trying to find CEOs for companies, this is his ploy. He goes to their office on their turf where they're more relaxed. He starts talking about football and sports or whatever might interest the potential CEO. He loosens his tie, takes his coat off, kind of props his shoes up on the potential CEO's desk. And about the moment that he's got him completely relaxed, he all of a sudden takes his feet off, stares a guy in the air in the eyes and says, what is your purpose in life? He said, you'd be amazed. Once you get him relaxed, those present and future CEOs are completely rattled by the question, What's at your core? What is your purpose in life? One CEO, without hesitating, looked him in the eye and said, to go to heaven and to take as many people as I can with me. Boom. That's my purpose in life. What's the church's purpose? What's your purpose in life? I hope it doesn't look like that. I hope that you could answer immediately. My purpose in life is to be a witness concerning the things that Jesus began to do and to teach, to continue the preaching of the kingdom of God. God loves and Jesus has died and we are forgiven. Luke, volume 1, all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Acts, volume 2, Jesus keeps on doing and keeps on teaching about the kingdom of God, now through the empowered people of God called the church, the only institution empowered by the Spirit, chosen by the Son, set aside to keep talking about the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Oh God, how exciting to open up this volume too. And realize we've got some big shoes to fill. That indeed now we are the voice of God. We are the presence of God, the church. That in dwelt and empowered by the Spirit that we are to begin in our own community and to go to the remotest part of the earth to proclaim the news that Jesus has died, He's alive, He's ascended, the eyewitnesses have seen. And his kingdom is the only thing that matters. In the name of the one crucified and raised, we worship and pray. Amen. You may be here this morning, and it's your morning to be confronted with that gospel. That Jesus died for your sins, and he rose again. He ascended to heaven, and indeed, though we do not know, the chronoi or the chiroi, the times or the seasons in the sovereignty of God, there is a time and a season when he will return for his people, the church. Have you found your purpose in life? Do you know for whom you're living? Maybe today you would say, I want to find that purpose. I want to find that kingdom. I want to find that.